And behold, the time cometh that he curseth your riches, that they become slippery, that ye cannot hold them, and in the days of your poverty ye cannot retain them. Hello listeners, this is Nick from Book of Mormon Central, and today's podcast addresses the question, Why did Samuel say the wealth of some Nephites would become slippery? Samuel the Lamanite's famous prophetic warnings are found in Helaman, chapters 13 through 15. His pronouncement began with a massive rebuke of the pride, greed, iniquities, priestcrafts, ingratitude, and foolishness of wicked Nephites who were willing to embrace false prophets while utterly rejecting the righteous prophets. Samuel pulled no punches. In this context, he used the word slippery three times and the word slipped once. Looking closely, one sees the following interesting details and significant complexities. Because of wickedness and abominations, Samuel said that their land itself would now be a cursed land. It had once been a land of promise. Because of this curse upon the land, the land itself would act as a receptacle of this vengeance. Whoso shall hide up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more because of the great curse of the land. This curse would operate to keep riches away from people who had hidden them up in an effort to keep them away from the Lord. Whoso hideth up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more, save he be a righteous man and shall hide it up unto the Lord. If people did not thank the Lord for giving them their riches, he himself would rightfully take their riches back. Because of their iniquity, this curse would come upon the people and their riches. The curse would take the form of unexplained losses. People would say, And behold, our swords are taken from us in the day we have sought them for battle. The mirrored punishment of those who have set their hearts upon their riches would be that they should cry in vain unto the Lord in their poverty. The disobedient would cry out in vain for help from the Lord, and they would regret that they had not repented. Ironically, if people hid up their treasures to protect them from their enemies, the Lord himself would retributively hide up their treasures when they flee before those enemies. Those who try to secure their riches would find that they could not hold or retain them. Indeed, in order to make it perfectly clear that the people would not be able to overcome the consequences of this curse simply by holding on more tightly to their treasures, Samuel warned that God would curse their riches so that they would become slippery. People would lament, Oh, that we had remembered the Lord our God in the day that he gave us our riches, and then they would not have become slippery that we should lose them. For behold, our riches are gone from us. These people would finally admit, Yea, we have hid up our treasures, and they have slipped away from us because of the curse of the land. Because they did not repent when the word of the Lord came unto them, they would say, The land is cursed, and all things are become slippery, and we cannot hold them. Having once accused Samuel of being of the devil, they would now blame their problem on the angels of the devil. Behold, we are surrounded by demons, yea, we are encircled about by the angels of him who hath sought to destroy our souls. Too late they would wail, Behold, our iniquities are great. O Lord, canst thou not turn away thine anger from us? Samuel issued here a complex prophetic lawsuit. Samuel's judgment oracle interweaves God, humans, the devil, demons, destroying angels, land, riches or treasures, true and false prophets, military enemies, natural causes, and spiritual consequences. As a part of this picture, items become slippery 
due to God cursing the land, the earth then obeying God, and the people disobediently hiding their treasures instead of hiding them up unto God. In his redaction of Nephite records, Mormon provided a prologue to Samuel's prophecy. To explain the worldview standing behind Samuel's prophecy, Mormon inserted into his abridgment of the Book of Helaman an exquisite exposition. It explains the long-suffering of the Lord, the foolish insolence of man, the obedience of even the very dust of the earth, and the inability of man to hide anything from God. Mormon inserted this exposition knowing what Samuel's prophecy contained. Thus, Mormon said, If a man hide up a treasure in the earth, and the Lord shall say, Let it be accursed, because of the iniquity of him who hath hid it up, behold, it shall be accursed by the Lord for as long as the Lord shall deem. This is because the earth, the waters of the deep, the mountains, and the dust all obey God, moving here or there, to the dividing asunder at the command of our great and everlasting God. This cosmic worldview was common in biblical times and throughout much of antiquity. Mormon also recorded a final fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy. After Mormon had inscribed 3rd Nephi and 4th Nephi onto his plates, he finally turned to composing his own autobiographical record. As a young man, he had personally witnessed what he saw as the fulfillment of several of Samuel's words. This must have left a powerful impression on him. As Mormon wrote, And these Gadianton robbers, who were among the Lamanites, did infest the land, insomuch that the inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth, and they became slippery, because the Lord had cursed the land, that they could not hold them, nor retain them again. And it came to pass that there were sorceries, and witchcrafts, and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi, and also Samuel the Lamanite. While Mormon held firmly to the spirit of Samuel's prophecy, four subtle differences are worth noting. First, in Mormon's day, the Nephites hid up their treasures because they were trying to protect them from the Gadiantans without fleeing from them. While Samuel had spoken of people burying their treasures as they fled before their enemies, Mormon's people were hiding their riches and were not using their God-given resources to defend against their opponents. Second, speaking of his day, Mormon mentions sorceries and witchcrafts and magics upon all the face of the land. While Samuel had predicted that wicked people in his day would complain that they were surrounded by demons, Samuel did not indicate that any of those unrepentant Nephites were using occult or magical practices. In Mormon's day, however, people were using these standard indigenous practices, presumably to curse people or property, to avert disaster or disease, or in trying to counteract the curse that God had placed upon the land. Third, in Samuel's day, the iniquitous people would say, Yea, we are encircled about by the angels of him who hath sought to destroy our souls. By Mormon's time, these misfortunes were explicitly seen as the direct work of the devil, the evil one himself. Fourth, in Mormon chapter 1, the treasures became slippery only because the Lord had cursed the land. Samuel, hoping that the people would yet repent, mentioned many human factors that had led God to curse the land, as well as the people and their riches. In any event, that curse on the land was durable and powerful. Many ancient people shared all or parts of the worldview of Samuel and Mormon. Under the Roman Twelve Tables, from around 450 BC, for example, it was a capital offense for a person to place a curse or magical enchantment upon the land or crops of a neighbor. 
This was because people believed in the existence of gods, spirits, or forces that people could effectively mobilize, either for good or for evil purposes. A biblical background also helps explain Samuel's warning about treasures becoming slippery. As Blake Osler has noted, the Book of Mormon is best interpreted from an understanding of the Deuteronomic Covenant, which required obedience and pronounced resulting curses and blessings upon the land for breach or obedience to the covenant, respectively. The ethic prominent throughout the Book of Mormon is that seeking wealth while ignoring the poor is abhorrent to God. The ability to obtain riches and keep them was dependent upon obedience to the Deuteronomic covenant. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, ye shall surely perish. In addition to Deuteronomy, Micah chapter 5, quoted by Jesus in 3 Nephi, condemns the use of witchcrafts, soothsayers, and graven images. The biblical account of the rebellion of Korah geographically describes how a rebel Levitical priest, along with his sons and all their goods and households, were swallowed up by the earth. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and they went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them. Reflecting on this story, which is retold in the Quran, one Ottoman Turkish poet, who died in the early 16th century, described the swallowed possession of Kara's rebellious allies as literally the moving treasure, so called because it is said to be still sinking deeper into the earth's heart. A later Jewish legend describes the terrible fate of Kara and his allies as being swallowed down to hell, tortured, and cast up back near the surface of the earth only to perpetually repeat the process until their final resurrection. The audible groans of Korah and his confederates are said to be faintly perceptible to anyone who puts their ear close to the ground. Furthermore, an Egyptian text known as the Instruction of Amenemop, which predates Lehi's departure from Jerusalem by many centuries, warns, Do not set your heart upon seeking riches, for there is no one who can ignore destiny and fortune. If riches come to you by thievery, they will not spend the night with you. As soon as day breaks, they will not be in your household. Although their places can be seen, they are not there. When the earth opens up its mouth, it levels him and swallows him up. They will plunge in the deep. They will make for themselves a great hole which suits them. And they will sink themselves in the underworld, or they will make themselves wings like geese and fly up to the sky. It has been widely recognized that the instruction of Amenemop parallels some of the concepts and language found in the biblical book of Proverbs. And indeed, may have been the source of inspiration for some of its axioms. As Nili Shupak has argued, most of the Egyptian wisdom works, including Amenemop, served as study materials in scribal school and other educational frameworks. One may assume, even if there is no direct evidence, that during the first temple period such institutions dedicated to educating high-ranking officials existed in the royal court of Judah. These simultaneously served as the basis for the development of biblical wisdom literature and the assimilation of Egyptian and other foreign cultural elements. At least part of the biblical wisdom books and selections from famous Egyptian wisdom works in the original or translation were likely to have been studied herein. 
In this context, the fact that Proverbs invinces literal parallels to Amenemop, as well as concepts, motifs, and expressions known from other Egyptian works composed centuries earlier, should come as little surprise. This is equally significant for the Book of Mormon. Kevin Barney has observed that it seems more than coincidental, yet not surprising, that the concept of slippery, disappearing treasures is found both in an Egyptian text known to the ancient Israelites and in the Book of Mormon, a record with cultural, linguistic, and literary roots in the ancient Near East. Hugh Nibley and Blake Osler have also drawn attention to the condemnation of the self-indulgence of the rich in First Enoch as another potential ancient parallel for the curses of Samuel in Helaman chapter 13. First Enoch 94 reads, Woe to you, ye rich, for ye have trusted in your riches, and from your riches shall ye depart, because ye have not remembered the Most High in the days of your riches. Woe unto you who acquire silver and gold in unrighteousness, for your riches shall not abide, but speedily ascend from you, and ye shall be given over to a great curse. As with the Book of Mormon, this concept of riches becoming a curse against the wicked in the text of First Enoch is probably derived, ultimately, from a biblical background. For many reasons, Samuel foretold that the riches of iniquitous people would become slippery. For one thing, he truly wanted people to repent. While their riches would pass out of their grasp, they would not be destroyed. They could still be reclaimed. Oil renders substances slippery, but oil can be washed away. A slippery promise cannot be relied on, but the covenant of the Lord is firm and steadfast. Slippery conditions are unstable and uncertain, as is a slippery trick. But faith and obedience to the commandments of God restores confidence, certainty, and stability. Samuel also wanted to speak to his audience in terms they understood. Their worldview unquestionably accepted the presence of spirits, beings, and forces of nature that influenced the world around them. By saying that their wickedness would bring God's curse upon them, upon their land, and upon their coveted treasures, Samuel hoped that his warning would pierce the hearts of his audience. He wanted his words to ring true, so that the people would take them to heart. The specter of things slipping away would ring physically and naturally true to them. Samuel also declared God's divine judgment upon these people. His words were consistent with God's law of reciprocal justice. An eye for an eye, that which ye do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. Thus, the suitable punishment for unrighteously holding on to one's treasure is precisely that they will become slippery, and no one will be able to hold or retain them, and their land of promise would reciprocally become cursed land. In their ancient legal world, all this was ultimately just and fair. He also spoke in cultural terms that his audience would have known something about. Biblical fate of Karah and his family as well as the wisdom of Proverbs and of ancient traditional sources, may well have been brought to his listeners' minds by Samuel's new and arresting use of the unusual word slippery. When mentioned together with demons, and later with sorceries, witchcrafts, and magics, this word brought with it the sanction, warning, and opprobrium of both the law in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and of the prophets in Micah and Nahum. Within Samuel's traditions in the Book of Mormon, the loss of riches or treasures was not because of mischievous spirits playing tricks on treasure diggers, but because of wickedness and pride. From the beginning of Nephite preaching in the land of Nephi, the loss of prosperity was a result of divine displeasure and a sign of what would be their ultimate fate if they did not repent. Their hearts are set upon their treasures, the prophet Jacob warned, 
Wherefore their treasure is their God, and behold their treasure shall perish with them also. In contrast to earthly treasure, which, despite mortals' best efforts, can easily slip through their fingers, Helaman taught his sons Lehi and Nephi, who may have well been the two missionaries who converted Samuel, that they should seek intangible eternal treasures, which doesn't fade away. Lay up for yourselves a treasure in heaven, yea, which is eternal, and which fadeth not away. Yea, that ye may have that precious gift of eternal life. Although it has been argued that the language and imagery of slippery treasure in the Book of Mormon must be a nod to 19th century treasure digging, which included a belief in guardian demons that moved buried treasure to different locations when people dug for them, there are, in fact, compelling ancient parallels for this language and imagery. While the vocabulary and concept of slippery treasure clearly parallel early American treasure-seeking concepts, such ideas were not exclusive to that time period, and they do not account for the overarching thrust of Samuel's prophecy in Helaman chapter 13, or the overall message of the rest of the Book of Mormon. The slipperiness of treasure in the Book of Mormon is not because a would-be treasure-seeker was foiled by a guardian spirit, but because the earth and its inhabitants are so far removed from Yahweh's protection that the laws of nature are violated. Items will not stay put. This reversal of expectations presaged the people's destruction. Book of Mormon's slipperiness doesn't lose wealth. It loses a nation. Despite the surface-level similarities, it is clear that the worldview associated with money-digging had little influence on the Book of Mormon. To grasp the richness and depth of any sacred scripture, one must delve deep below the surface level, have patience, use caution, read in full context, and seek to apply personally its divine message. Thank you for listening. To find out more, please visit bookofmormoncentral.org and then click on Know Why.